particular story in the Bible. If you've never, if you're not, and don't be shy, it's okay, because you won't be the only one, I promise. If, you've, if you're not super familiar with the story of Uzzah, raise your hand, Uzzah, yep. You want to know why? It's probably the worst story in the Bible. It's horrible. It's embarrassing, and nobody wants to preach about it. You'll see why. Like, no, every preacher, no preacher ever preaches on Uzzah. It's like the boil on the Bible that you're embarrassed for anyone just to know is there. <laughs> it's like nobody wants to look at this story. It's terrible. But it's there. It's a part of the word of God, and every word of God is inspired and is there for our reproof, doctrine, and correction, and instruction, and righteousness, it says in Peter. So we got to look at it. We have to face dear poor Uzzah. we got to look at Uzzah today. And it's so important. This is this, this, I believe this passage, actually, since I've been studying this, it was one I never wanted to look at, like, us is the crazy uncle we keep in the basement. <laughs> I think it's one of my favorite stories now. I, I'm starting to understand why it's there and, and what's going on. So join me in this journey to get Uzza, okay? So 2 Samuel 6. 2 Samuel 6, um, before I start reading, just some background in, in the book of um, Exodus 25. You don't have to turn there. You can read this chapter on your own. If, you, if you're taking notes, you want to jot down. Exodus 25 is when God gave Moses the instructions on how to, how to build the Ark of the Covenant, right? And anyone seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? I don't even know that I've watched the movie all the way through, but the Ark of the Covenant, God said to Moses, I want you to build this box. Basically, it was a box. It was like a chest, wooden overlaid with gold, wooden overlaid with gold, had two cherubim or angels on the lid facing each other, and then there was a mercy seat. That was the top, kind of the lid, and God said to Moses, that's the place I'm going to meet you. That's our meeting spot. That's it. So you make this ark, and there I will meet you. So the ark was central to Jewish worship. That's where they met with God. It housed the presence of God. Okay? And so, but at this time in our story that we're looking at today, the ark has, has, is not where it needs to be in Jerusalem. It's, it's somewhere else. And so David is bringing it back. King David, the second king of Israel, God has put it on his heart to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to its place, back to the city of David, right? And to restore the tabernacle of David and to restore proper worship and to put the Ark, the presence of God, where it needs to be, okay? So that's the backdrop for the story. 2 Samuel 6, verse 1. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000 of them. That's important to note because what's going to happen, it'll help you understand what happens in this story when you realize that many people are watching. 30,000 people are watching what's about to happen. Very important. Someone's always watching your life. 
might not be 30,000, but if it's three, if it's one little child, that's enough. So he gathers the choice men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim, the angels. So they set the ark of God on a new cart. Now, that's a problem because when you read this week, when you read Exodus 25, and when you see the instructions, God was very clear. Make this ark with these four rings, one on each corner, and you're going to put these poles through the rings, and you carry the ark on your shoulders wherever you go because that was God's, there's a reason which we'll get to. Carry the ark on your shoulders. It was very clearly instructed. So we see right off that someone's being disobedient to what God has instructed. They set the ark on a new cart. So this is a cart, perhaps with wheels. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah, there he is, and Ohio, not Ohio, Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. I don't know what they were thinking, but it seems kind of lazy. I mean, they certainly made it easier. I think it was probably heavy. They knew the law. They knew God's instructions. And they're carrying, they're putting, they're not carrying the presence of the Lord. They're putting it on a cart. They brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. I think, I wonder if part of it was familiarity because Uzzah had lived in the house of Abinadab and he had become so used to this ark. I wonder if he just got used to it. Ah, you know, church, church people, familiarity breeds contempt. Eh, don't need that anymore. Complacency. He's familiar with it. That's just the ark. It's been here. Been here in the house for a while. We can throw it on a cart. Not a big deal. As long as we get it to where it needs to go. Then David and all, verse 5, Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments. I love that. All kinds of instruments of fir wood. Okay, we've got the wood section. Harps, stringed instruments. Okay, we've got the orchestra. We've got the wood instruments, the strings, and then on tambourines, sistrums, and on cymbals. And notice, just a side note, half of these instruments are percussion instruments. If you didn't know, a sistrum actually originated in Egypt. It was an ancient Egyptian instrument, and it was kind of like a giant rattle. So there's the percussion section, because What's going to happen? You kind of need percussion for what happens in this story. You'll see. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 6. 
When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, this is where they tread out the grain, you know, the oxen tread out the grain. It must have been fairly unstable. Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Another thing you need to know, the instructions in Exodus 25, another part of God's instructions was don't touch it. It's holy. Don't touch it. That's why the poles are there, so that you don't have to touch the ark. The presence of God resides there. Do not touch the ark. They knew the instructions. But poor dear Uzzah, he realizes if I don't steady this thing, it's going to crash and fall apart. What's a man to do? Well, you realize if he had obeyed in the first place, this wouldn't have been a problem. The thing started to topple because they had disobeyed God's instructions, God's instructions and put it on the cart. So he reaches out to steady it when he sees it's about to fall. Verse 7, and this is the part. Nobody likes to preach from the pulpit. You'll see why. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. What on earth is going on here? It's difficult, isn't it? Did God really do that? I mean, he was trying to protect the ark. Surely we can't fault poor Uzzah for that. Here's my understanding of it thus far. First of all, we're reading this account with our finite human mindset. And of course, we would read that and think, oh, how dare God do that? What, that's so harsh, really? Such a little thing, and he toasts, he makes him toast? That's the human mindset. But remember, God is an eternal God. He lives outside of the time-space dimension, as we've been talking about. We have to realize, and from God's eternal mind, that this was so important a lesson that God had no problem taking dear Uzzah and lifting him out of this time-space dimension, prematurely perhaps, wasn't what he wanted to do, but he lifted him out of it and plopped him into eternity. I don't believe Uzzah went straight to hell over this, but God had to take him out to teach us something that was that important. It was worth the life of Uzzah. And remember, Uzzah is simply leaving the time-space dimension and he's being placed in eternity. So in God's mind, that's what's going on, but God did it in front of these 30,000 people to teach us something very important. And I believe it's this. Uzzah had made the presence of God something separate from himself that he assumed could be carried on an ark, on a cart. A cart makes me think of work, a work cart. Oh, I got to work. It's how we got to go do worship. We got to go to worship. He had made it an event, something separate from himself that he's dragging along on this cart. And then when it went wrong, oh, he's got to protect it so it stays intact. He missed 
the entire point, a point that was so important that that God was willing to remove him, and it was an underscore in history. People read the Bible and they think, oh, the Bible is so bad. It's full of, of unjust punishments. No, it's not. These, hap- these were instances that happened over a period of a few thousand years, and we read about these, these isolated incidents and assume that's what went on all the time. God did this to underscore his holiness and the importance of carrying the presence of God with you every minute of every hour of every day of your life. That was the lesson as I missed. We have to carry the presence of God with us. There is nothing worse, dear church, then people coming into church to worship and create this form of worship on a cart and they have not carried the presence of God in them throughout the week. It's called a Sunday Christian. You've got to carry the presence of God with you if you want to be a true worshiper, a true worshiper. So God had to do something to make sure we got the point. Us is okay. Us is okay. I, I, I really believe that. This was God teaching us a lesson. Us is in eternity, and we leave that to God. God's the judge. God is the judge. We cannot assume that just because from our point of view this thing happened to Uzza, that this is just the most horrible, that we can write off the whole entire God for that matter. Let's see how David handled this, though. David, verse 8, became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. Well, yeah. You think you would? I think I would. He's human. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day, which means outburst against Uzzah. Imagine, you taking a trip through that with the kids. There's a sign that says outbreak against Uzzah. Kids, remember that? David was afraid of the Lord that day. So we've got anger and fear, two very common emotions toward a God we sometimes don't understand. Even King David, the psalmist. Anger and fear is very understandable, isn't it? But what's important is what you do with that anger and fear. So let's look at what David did with it. He was afraid of the Lord that day, verse 9. And he asked, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? It's so fascinating to me. He did not ask, how could you do that? You torched the guy. I'm done. I'm done. This, This God business is not for me. I mean, isn't that what people do? God does something they don't understand. They get offended by. They get disillusioned, perplexed. I'm done. Yep, had enough of that. Yeah, I don't need church. Not with that kind of God. Not with those kind of people. They don't understand. And it's interesting. What he did not ask is, how could God do that? The question he did ask is, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? How can I maintain the presence of God in my life when he did this? 
like, I want, I, he's acknowledging, I need this presence of God in my life. I know I need God in my life, but I don't understand what he just did with this person that he probably loved. How can I keep God in my life when he goes and does stuff like that to people? He's asking a good question, and I believe he's asking the right question. And what he did not do is walk. He didn't throw in the towel, because remember, David had a heart after God. Remember, that's why God said, I have found a man after my own heart. In his heart, he had room to wait and know God enough to understand his ways, his ways. So what's he do? By the way, this is an, it says he was afraid of the Lord. It's normal to be afraid of God, but David's fear turned into a proper fear of God. This is what's important in this story. At the end of Ecclesiastes, you don't have to turn there, but in Ecclesiastes, the very last chapter, King Solomon's at the end of his life, remember the wisdom guy, and he says at the very end, basically he says this, one thing I've learned in life is you've got to have a proper fear of God. That's what matters. The fear, excuse me, the fear of God is all that matters. David took the time to let his human fear and his anger toward God sort of sit and develop into something proper and holy. His very human fear with time became a proper reverence and awe, and we will see what that kind of fear of God became in David's life. It's astonishing. I love this story. So he's afraid. He's questioning the Lord. How could you do this? And verse 10 is very, very important. You know, I've talked about the importance of waiting on God. Verse 10 says, so David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. You know what's going on here though, during those three months? David is thinking this thing through. He realizes, I know this God is not like that. That's, this is not the God I know. There's something I'm missing. And he's taking time to deal with his anger and his fear. He's not going to walk. He's not going to throw in the towel. He's not going to give up on God. He's not, he's not going to allow that anger to fester and morph into despair. He's taking this time before even continuing to move the ark, because why would you want to move the ark after that? Yeah, we, we, we don't, it doesn't say how it got there. But the point is he's taking his, the time to deal with his very human feelings of fear and anger, and he's allowing God to transform that fear into something proper and holy that more, looks more like reverence and awe than terror. See? So he's taking time to think and let the Lord speak to him concerning what's going on. But here's what happens. While the ark is in this house, Obed-Edom, it says the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. They didn't all break out in boils. The lightning didn't strike their house because this ark was there. I mean, can you imagine this ark after you see what happens to Uzzah? Now the ark is getting parked at your, in your yard and your house. And your... But God blessed them. God blessed them. 
David sees that. It was told King David, verse 12, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David realizes, okay, the blessing of God is on this ark. It wasn't the ark's fault. It wasn't God. It was Uzzah. So he decides, he comes to a place, and we're going we're gonna to see, <laughs> demonstrated, the place that David comes to and what has happened to his anger and his fear toward this thing that God did. So David went, verse 12, and he brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with, what's the word? With gladness. Now, if I were writing this story, naturally, I would write it and say he brought up the house, the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom with sheer terror and trembling. I mean, wouldn't you? <laughs> wouldn't you? He brings it up with gladness. And he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Oh, so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord, ah, now they're doing it. They're carrying it on their shoulders. When they had gone only six paces, they stopped and offered oxen and fatted sheep. I think that was probably a good idea. They even they only went six steps. You know, six in Scripture is the number of humanity. And I think when God allows us to see our humanity, what can we do but just worship and say, you still love me anyway? Oh, thank you. It's all about you. It was never about me. And so this is an act of humility because you notice the animal sacrifices are still being maintained as, as the, the initial act of worship that God instituted, but God is bringing something else in. He's bringing a new expression of worship, and it's called music. And so they go six paces. They sacrifice oxen and fatted sheep. And then it says this. Remember, this is the man who had to take three months off to deal with his anger and fear, right? This is what happens when you and I take time to understand and know God through quiet, regular waiting every day, listening to him, understanding his heart and his character. Watch the transformation. Verse 14 says, Then David danced before the Lord with all his might. And you've got to know that in the Hebrew, the original text, it actually is literally saying he whirled and twirled around. That does not seem like the kind of response one should have when they've just watched their buddy get torched by God for steadying the cart. What in the world? He's dancing and twirling around because he has come to understand God's heart, that God's heart is good and it's always been good. And he's always only had our best interest in heart. And he's got the whole entire point now is that God wants us to carry his presence in our lives, not make worship a separate event outside of ourselves. He danced before the Lord with all his might. I mean, he put everything into it. 
and David was wearing a linen ephod. That's a linen short garment that the priests wore. So he's the king, but in this instance, he's acting as a priest. The Bible says we have been called to be kings and priests unto God. Our priestly role is to intercede for each other and represent each other on God's behalf. God, I'm interceding for our sister and my brother. And it's also to communicate to the world who God is. That's how we act as, 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 as a priest unto God. And so David is acting like a priest in this instance. And you know what? That's all he's wearing. Now that is crazy. He's actually removed his kingly robe to become the priest in this moment. A priest is someone who's willing to go before God on someone else's behalf. It's a very humble, self-sacrificing call to the ministry of loving others. He's becoming in this moment very transparent, very vulnerable. I mean, no king would have ever removed their priestly robe in public and he's wearing this short linen tunic, the priestly ephod. Verse 15 says, David and all the house of Israel brought up the house of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. I mean, this is amazing. Not only is David dancing and twirling and whirling, but the people are shouting with joy. Why? Because they're following his example. They're watching his life. You, mean, you maintain an attitude and a posture of fear and anger and terror toward the Lord. People see that. Your family will see that. These people are watching David and his joy is catching and they get it. They realize, wow, we did it wrong. Now we're doing it the right way and we get to enjoy God's blessing that comes upon obedience. So he's shouting with the sound of the trumpet. Verse 16 says, As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, it's probably pronounced Michal, but I'll say Michael. Michael, Saul's daughter, the, writing, the writer makes a point to identify her as Saul's daughter. Remember King Saul? I've talked about him numerous times. The very insecure first king of Israel. The very angry, seething anger. He never took the time like David did to deal with his fear and terror toward the Lord. That was part of his insecurity and his anger. He never took the time to deal with it. So here's his daughter. How does she react to seeing her husband, the king, strip himself of his robes and twirl and dance around in front of all the people? Michael, verse 16, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David, her husband, leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. I want to read uh, something about this woman. Lloyd John Olgavy says this about Michael. David's abandoned freedom to express his praise is contrasted with his wife Michael's reserve and contempt. Michael was like her father Saul, 
Her emotional energy was not guided by firm beliefs about God's sovereignty and grace. There was little in her mind about God's loving kindness, and therefore, little capacity of emotional delight in him. There are Michaels in all of our lives, people whose minds are starved for liberating truth about God and whose emotions are stunted by the malnutrition of lively belief. The conviction of God's grace results in the expression of joy. I'll say that again. The conviction of God's grace results in the expression of joy. The tragedy of religion is that it produces more Michaels than Davids. A heart that has never felt God's presence in sorrow or pain will seldom express his delight and adoration and praise. That was Michael. Verse 17 says, They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. So he makes this tent, gets it ready for the ark, then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both women and men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. What's going on here? He's throwing a party. He's celebrating the presence of God. He's enjoying the very presence of God that made Uzzah toast. How can this be? He's come to understand what's, on, what's in God's heart. God wants to be enjoyed. He wants to be a part of you. He wants to be carried in your life. He wants to be so much a part of you, not some separate religious event. David got the memo. Well, what does his wife say? Verse 20, he returned to bless his household. Imagine you're going to bless your household. He blessed everyone else, giving them all kind of treat, kinds of treats. He's coming back to bless his household, and his wife meets him. Michael, the daughter of Saul, we're reminded of that again, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, and she gets all, goes all sarcasm on him. Anybody really gifted at sarcasm? <laughs> How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Wow. So David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. This is better translated as, I am going to humble myself to worship the Lord with everything I've got at the risk of looking like a crazy person. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. 
Have you noticed that people who don't really understand grace and don't really enjoy the presence of God tend to not have a lot of fruit in their life to show for it? Spiritual fruit? It's like it's spiritual barrenness. So what do we learn? We've got two lessons to learn from this passage today. Number one, carry the presence of God with you. It's not an event. We refer to it as a worship service, a worship team, a worship leader. Those are fine. I mean, those are just traditional terms, but they're really a misnomer. We are worshipers, and worship is a posture of the heart. It's a way of life. It's an attitude of spirit. Remember when Jesus met the woman at the well, the, the Samaritan woman at the well, and she realizes he's, he's reading her mail like he's telling her her life, and, and she realizes, yeah, he's something supernatural. He's, she realizes he's the Messiah, and she changes the subject and goes all logistics on him about worship. She says, now tell me. I mean, he's just told her her whole life story. You'd think she'd fall at his feet and worship him. Instead, she starts to study worship. She says, now tell me this. You guys worship in Jerusalem. We Samaritans worship over here on Mount Gerizim. Where's the best place to worship? But that's what we do in the church. We focus on the logistics and on the instructions, and we think we're steadying the ark. And we, and, and we think we're doing a good thing by treating worship as this event to get exactly right. And Jesus looks at her and he says, the hour is coming, woman, lady. And now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking people like that to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It's not the letter of the law. It's the spirit that we worship God with, that we worship the spirit of God with. We worship him with our spirit, not our, not our minds, not just our minds. It's not about logistics, methods, formulas, or following the script. Music is just one expression of worship. It's one expression of worship. There are so many times in scripture where someone comes to Jesus and it says they fall at his feet and they worship him. There's no music mentioned. Music is an expression of worship that God gave us through David, instituted through David. Pythagoras said this. Remember Pythagoras, the Pyth Pythagorean theorem? He said this. A squared, no, that's not it. <laughs> music is the language of the heart. The only language that enters the soul without having to pass through the filter of the brain first. David got this revelation of true worship years ahead of his time. He said in Psalm 40, verse 6, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. I think that's what happened during those three months of waiting on the Lord after Uzzah. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Psalm 51, 16 says, You did not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You did not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God truly are a broken spirit. This speaks of humility. A broken and a contrite heart. 
These, O oh God, you will not despise. David had the revelation that worship is a matter of the heart. It's a posture of the heart before the Lord. And it's his presence is something we carry. And number two, the second point, is that relationship, God prioritizes relationship over the musical expression of worship. If you don't believe me, look at Matthew 5.23. I'll just read this passage real quick. It's, it's, a, it's a sobering passage. Matthew 5.23, Jesus says this. If you bring your gift to the altar, that's your worship, your act of worship, right? If you bring your gift to the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In other words, make things right at the very least in your heart before you bring your act of worship. That's heavy-duty stuff, isn't it? God is so far more interested in the posture of our heart than in the sound from our voice as we sing our worship. Can you put Zephaniah... Um, not yet, not yet. There was another man many centuries after Uzzah, our great high priest, and he too carried something on his shoulders, but it wasn't overlaid with gold. Oh, no, he's full humanity. He laid aside his privileges, his divine power. He laid it aside and became one of us. And he carried a cross, a heavy cross, up the hill of, of Calvary. And he bore it on his shoulders. And it wasn't exactly that he was carrying the presence of God. He was the presence of God. And he bore that cross on his shoulders. And this thing that he carried represented all of our sin. All of our sin. Every bit of it. He carried it for you. And he carried it for me. And he too was struck down. Struck down as it were, struck down by God, by the holiness of God coming in contact with sinful humanity. But it wasn't just that God, it wasn't that God in his wrath smote his son. There's a verse that says, God was in Christ reconciling himself to the world. Jesus said, nobody takes my life. I give it freely. God chose to bear your sin on his shoulders so that you would not be struck down. So that you could get up and keep walking. And not just keep walking, so that you could twirl and dance and enjoy his presence forever. What is the chief man, chief, the chief end of man, according to the Westminster Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy his presence forever. Zephaniah 3.17, I want to close with this verse. I think it's the right one. 
As we look at this verse, I'm going to have the band come up, and we're going to close with a song called The Heart of Worship. Zephaniah 3.17. I want you to look at these words because we talked of David twirling and whirling and dancing before the Lord, but did you know he dances over you? The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you. In the Hebrew, guess what that word means? It literally means to spin around. He will twirl and whirl over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. You know why we can so enjoy the presence of the Lord with total abandon? You know why we can dance before him? Because he dances over us. We love him because he first loved us. So, transition here. I'm going to invite you to stand with the piano on. Maybe, David, you can dim the lights. This is your moment to become undignified. <laughs> Remove that